This episode is brought to you by Milano Cookies. Look, sometimes that long Zen yoga class is just not in the cards. So maybe a cookie is. Pepperidge Farm Milano believes you should make some time for yourself once in a while. I know I have a particular space in my sewing room that I like to just take a few minutes every day. I sit there. I think about things. It's kind of like meditation and munching at the same time. You can get that yummy, beautiful cookie flavor. It makes it luxurious and delightful, and I always feel recharged. Milano cookies are truly a treat worthy of your me time. They're delicate and crispy with luxuriously rich chocolate in the middle. You really want to keep these just for you. So remember to save something for yourself with Pepperidge Farm Milano. The richest, most powerful place on earth. A fiction podcast. Tuman Bay. On an epic scale. Power is everything. Power gives everything. We have to get away from this place. Tuman Bay is our destiny. Now on the iHeart Podcast Network, Tuman Bay. Be sharp and die for Tuman Listen to all episodes of Tomb and Bay Seasons 1 and 2 now for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fromm. And I'm Tracy V. Wilson. Tracy, question. Yes? Do you like opera? I would like to like opera right well i love opera but i'm always a little bit um reticent to verbalize that to people that know a lot about opera because what often happens is that they're then like excited and off at a gallop wanting to talk about like different performances and you know some very technical things and i'm kind of like no i just like to listen to it but i'm not really what you would call an opera scholar even on the most mild degree but I really enjoy it. And there are a lot of aspects of opera that are actually in our daily lives and we don't even know about. Um, and today we're going to talk about a very famous opera house that has a legacy that touches probably anyone hearing this is life, whether they realize it or not. If you grew up watching Bugs Bunny, if you grew up watching television or film, you have heard some of the work that came out of this sort of hotbed of, you know, really amazing cultural development. Uh, I, I will make a brief aside about how one of them got involved in my wedding, sort of, when we get to that part. Uh, and we're talking about the La Scala Opera House, the Teatro a la Scala, which is one of the most renowned opera houses in all the world. It is Italy's crown jewel of the arts, really. And as I said, even if you only have a passing knowledge of opera, or really you don't think you have any knowledge of opera, odds are you know a name or two connected to the history of this legendary place. Uh, because it, it's one of those amazing icons that really actually touches and sort of ties together a lot of different pieces of history on the timeline. So there are things that you may not associate with opera that will kind of get connected here. So we will start with how it got built in the first place. On February 26, 1776, the Royal Ducal Theater burned to the ground in a fire. Since the theater had really been the heart of opera in Milan, they needed to build a replacement. Uh, and at the time, the Royal House of Austria was actually ruling over Milan. And Empress Maria Theresa spearheaded this plan to replace this lost cultural landmark. And again, to place Maria Theresa in context, she was the mother of the famed Queen of France, Marie Antoinette, as well as uh, the mother of the Holy Roman Emperor, Leopold II. She had many, many other children and really kind of uh, populated a lot of royal houses throughout Europe. So that's the first person who's kind of connected to this that you might not have known about. 
The architect chosen for the task of designing the new opera house was Giuseppe Pimarini. Pimarini is now considered one of the great neoclassical architects, and he was no stranger to high-profile gigs. He had also worked on the Royal Palace of Milan, as well as the Maria Theresa Hall of the Brodensi National Library, also in Milan. And the cost of construction uh, for this new theater was funded by the people who had actually already owned private boxes in the destroyed Ducal Theater. And in return, these donors got renewed ownership of their boxes. So in the new theater, they would once again have a box, as well as partial ownership of the land where the theater was built. And prior to the theater going up, the Church of Santa Maria alla Scala had been standing on that land and had to be demolished to make way for the new facility. And the name uh, La Scala was uh, retained as a way to kind of honor that church. It took a little more than two years to build the new building. And on August 3rd, 1778, Milan's new opera house, Teatro alla Scala, which translates to the theater at the stairway, opened its doors. The first opera performed there was Antonio Salieri's uh, Europa Revealed. Mattia Verazzi wrote the libretto, which centers on the story of Zeus's former lover Europa. The plot begins with Europa being kidnapped, but just before her wedding, and forced into marriage with the king of Crete. Uh, After lots of dramatic twists and turns, Europa is placed on the throne of Tyre, although she quickly turns over the seat of power to Asseo and his new love, Semela, after she performs their marriage. And so uh, La Scala continued to offer operatic performances to great success for many years. So again, that was uh, late 1700s when it reopened its doors, or when it opened its doors to replace the previous theater. But then in the early 1800s, there were several developments that happened that really sort of changed the complexion of La Scala's artistic offerings and their focus. First in 1812, an opera by Gioacchino Rossini debuted, and it was called The Touchstone. It was the story of love tested by multiple suitors with a libretto that was written by Luigi Romanelli. This marked a move to what's called opera seria or serious opera, and the style focuses more on the solo voice and bel canto or beautiful singing. Although that's not what it was called until a whole lot later. To explain bel canto, we'll quote New York Times music writer Anthony Tomasini, who wrote the following in 2008. In its narrowest sense, bel canto opera refers to the early decades of 19th century Italian opera, when Rossini, Bellini, and Donizetti dominated the field. But the overall concept of bel canto started much earlier with a consensus among opera enthusiasts that there was nothing more ravishing than a beautiful voice singing a beautiful melodic line beautifully, especially a melodic line driven by sensitive musical setting of a poetic and singable text. Hey, listeners, I wanted to tell you about a new podcast from iHeartRadio called The Women, hosted by Rose Reed. It is a fascinating and deep dive interview show where Rose talks to changemakers and disruptors, and she finds out what really drives them. So she will ask each of them, what was your first stand and how do you navigate success and failure? And really, what's the cost of fighting for others? These interviews are really personal and they're candid and sometimes they're a little bit crass, but they are always really enlightening. You can listen to these firebrands 
plans and takeaway lessons that will help you navigate your own life and forge your own path. The debut season includes women like Valerie Plame, the former CIA agent who is now running for Congress, and whistleblower and pediatrician Dr. Mona Hanna-Atisha, who exposed the Flint water crisis and became the center of a swirling, swirling amount of problems, uh, and the legendary Buffy St. Marie, 60s songwriter and activist. Uh, I have personal interest in this show because I adore Rose and I executive produce it, and I think you're really going to enjoy the way that she gets into these conversations that feel like two friends talking, and they are an absolute delight. So subscribe to The Women on the iHeartRadio app, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey guys, it's Bobby Bones. I host The Bobby Bones Show, and I'm pretty much always sleepy because I wake up at 3 o'clock in the morning. A couple hours later, I get all my friends together, and we get into a room, and we do a radio show. We share our lives, we tell our stories, we try to find as much good in the world as we possibly can, and we look through the news of the day that you'll care about. Also, your favorite country artists are always stopping by to hang out and share their lives and music, too. So wake up with a bunch of my friends on 98.7 WMZQ in Washington, D.C., or wherever the road takes you on the iHeartRadio app. So whereas prior operas had really included more chorus and orchestra elements, uh, this style kind of put those in the background. It favored a single exquisite voice uh, for pieces of performance. And Rossini's opera was instantly successful, and it was performed dozens of times over the course of its run. With opera Syria now at the forefront of Milan's opera culture, Rossini had lots of additional works performed at La Scala over the next 13 years. These included Il Turco in Italia, or The Turk in Italy, his version of Cinderella, Il Barbieri di Seville, or The Barber of Seville, which you're familiar with if you've watched lots of books, Bunny, and Otello, among others. So uh, as a brief aside, I will tell you that The Rabbit of Seville is my absolute favorite Bugs Bunny cartoon of all time. I also love What's Opera Doc, but in the opera arena, The Rabbit of Seville just works for me, largely because of all of the great um, Charlie Chaplin callbacks they do. So much so that a still from that cartoon is what was on my wedding invitations. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> so I owe a little bit to Rossini there. The other significant development for La Scala during this time was the staging of several ballets by Salvatore Vigano and Carlo Blasi. And Vigano shifted the focus of ballet to a narrative style with his choreography. In this case, the dance told a story in one arc rather than just being a series of sort of well-staged movements. Uh, his choreodrama, as it came to be called, had been developed in Vienna before he debuted it to Italian audiences. And once he started having showings at La Scala, it became very, very popular and he ended up working at the famous opera house for more than 15 years. And during this time, uh, while he was there, he staged, among others, uh, Otello, Dedalo, La Vestale, which is the Vestal Virgin, and E. Titani, which is the Titans. Carlo Blasi was a dancer and a student of Vigano, and in addition to continuing this narrative tradition of his mentor's choreography, he was also rigorous in systemizing the technique of ballet. He performed all over the world as a dancer, and he wrote his first treatise on dance while working in Milan with La Scala in 1820. His most famous writing on the art was the Code of Terpsichore. And in addition to advancing ballet technically, Blasi also promoted the idea that artists could be cultured and familiar with all of the arts, not just their own. Yeah, he really kind of fostered this idea that any dancers that were working with him needed to also be reading literature. They needed to be studying music. They needed to be really well-rounded, kind of Renaissance people in that regard. 
Um, the work of both Vigano and Blasi established La Scala in the world of ballet as well as the world of opera, uh, where it had already been succeeding. And it sort of built its reputation as a theater where just excellence prevailed amongst all manner of the arts. So during that time, two particular composers became just prolific at La Scala. The first was Gaetano Donizetti, and he premiered his opera Chiara e Serafina in October of 1822. The libretto was by Felice Romani. Because the work had just been rushed due to all kinds of problems and illnesses among the production members, the reception was mediocre. In spite of that, he continued to produce work for La Scala, as well as for many other opera houses for years afterward, including an opera entitled Lucrezia Borgia. He continued to serve the popularity of the bel canto style. Yeah, since I know we have a lot of Borgia fans in the listening audience, I want to make sure they knew that there's an opera about Lucrezia. Uh, the other important composer from this time is Vincenzo Bellini, and he debuted his opera Il Pirata, or The Pirate, in 1827 at La Scala. And Bellini's signature was really his amazing talent for writing vocal melody that's been characterized as both pure and sensuous. And his influence is apparent throughout the world of opera following him uh, in the works of many other famous composers, including Wagner, Chopin, and Liszt. So uh, while the entirety of La Scala is very influential, he in particular influenced several composers that came after him. Like Donizetti, Bellini was another artist who was linked to the bel canto style, although Bellini is generally believed to be the more gifted of the two in the area of vocal harmonies. Yeah, some of his work is just really beautiful to listen to. And like I said, I, you know, my knowledge of music theory and opera is very limited, but I still just am always struck by how absolutely beautiful some of these pieces are. Uh, and then there is an, uh, we get to a time when another really huge name that everyone will probably recognize, uh, that's attached to La Scala kind of emerges. And that is, uh, in 1839, Oberto Conte di San Bonifacio. Uh, the Count of San Benefesio, debuted at La Scala, and this was the first work of Giuseppe, Giuseppe Verdi to do so. And it kicked off a very long career for him and many years of debuts uh, by the composer at the famed Milan Opera House. And in fact, uh, Verdi is usually the most famous composer associated with La Scala. Everyone sort of recognizes his name, even if they couldn't maybe pull one of his tunes out of their memory. Verdi and La Scala became deeply linked to a degree beyond that of any other composer. While working on his first opera, he lost his infant daughter, and the second baby that he had with his wife, a son, died roughly a year after the debut of Oberto. It's said that when Verdi's wife died while he was working on his second opera, and the work Un Giorno de Regno, or King for a Day, was not well received, it was the manager of La Scala at the time, uh, who urged him to continue composing and to find solace in his work instead of quitting, which he had threatened to do. Yeah, so in that regard, uh, Bartolomeo Marelli, who was the, the the manager of the theater at the time, really kind of saved the creative life of Verdi um, and impacted him in a, in a sort of reciprocal way to the way that many of these composers were impacting the opera house. Uh, because if he had quit, oh, we would have been robbed of some beautiful stuff. Uh, and while that second opera, uh, Un de Reno, or King for a Day, was, didn't go so well, his third work that he did after that, 
Nabucco debuted in 1842, and this was really like the moment where he sort of rocketed to stardom. And that may sound like a weird phrase, but I mean, at this point, particularly in Italy, in Europe in general, but Italy especially, composers were kind of like rock stars. I mean, they were basically the celebrities of the the day. And so his career really just uh, kind of shot on a, a almost vertical trajectory at this point. And as a consequence, his career with La Scala lasted more than 50 years. He did retire for a little bit in the towards the end of it. And then he ended up working on his last couple of pieces as collaborations with another composer. But he sort of became famous and then stayed famous for decades working with La Scala. Perhaps his most famous opera, which was the tale of enslaved Ethiopian princess Aida, was rare in that it didn't premiere at La Scala. It was first presented at the Cairo Opera House in 1871, and then it premiered at La Scala shortly afterward. Yeah, there's a uh, a story that he did not attend the Cairo Opera House premiere, uh, but what he heard about how it had gone did not really delight him. It was mostly... Um, dignitaries and invite only and kind of higher echelons of society. And he really, you know, appreciated that opera was one of those things that could be appreciated by anyone. Uh, and so he really sort of considered the La Scala premiere the premiere because there were people from all layers of society, not only the sort of wealthy and famous and privileged. Uh, and among the famous pieces that Verdi did debut at La Scala during his 50-year run there were uh, Giovanna d'Arco, Otello, and Falstaff, uh, which was the last one. And he wrote more than two dozen operas during his career. So when you think about a 50-year career, that's an opera every couple of years, uh, which is really quite uh, busy. I can't, I certainly can't imagine doing it, but that would be like an author writing a book every two years, which some do, but very few keep up that pace. Often mentioned as second only to Verdi among Italian composers, Puccini emerged as the composer celeb of La Scala as the 1800s were ending. But he is responsible for one of the most famous, if not the most proud, incidents at the theater. In December of 1904, uh, Giacomo Puccini debuted Madama Butterfly, although the opening night was really something of a fiasco. And the word fiasco gets used almost every time someone writes about this particular event. Uh, it's a rather famous tale among opera enthusiasts and opera fans because it's just so crazy. Uh, and while Puccini was brimming with confidence regarding the quality of this particular work, the production itself was played with problems. As the opera was only recently completed when Puccini arrived in Milan for rehearsals, the singers got their parts only a few pages at a time. On top of that, music was not allowed to leave the theater, and the press was not allowed to sit in on rehearsals, which was a privilege they had enjoyed for a long time. This only served to make critics angry and predisposed to dislike the piece. And while the crowd on opening night, uh, according to at least some witnesses, was hostile from the get-go, the entrance of uh, Butterfly is really when things started to just go south in a hurry. And remember that um, opera, huge in Italy at the time, crowds very familiar with the work of famous composers. And so a portion of the melody uh, that she sang sounded to some people similar to an element from Puccini's previous work, La Boheme. And some members of the crowd started to call out what they felt was lazy composing. And they started yelling during the performance, Boheme, Boheme, because they were trying to point out that he was sort of plagiarizing himself. At this point, the crowd became polarized between 
supporters and and detractors, and attendees started yelling at each other in the stage so much that no one could hear the singing. And during the intermezzo, when performers had been placed around the theater with bird whistles to create this realistic soundscape of dawn breaking, hecklers in the audience saw this bird song as their cue to make other animal noises. So they, you know, started doing all kinds of other bizarre and rude noises and just basically kind of having their own little heyday with things. And the entire opera went on this way. Uh, with an unruly crowd basically bent on ruining the debut. And there's some debate over sort of what really caused this sort of rabble-rousing. Uh, there are some stories that say that Puccini's rivals sort of were working prior to this debut, really trying to, like, jab at the critics and point out how poorly they had been treated and not being allowed into rehearsals and kind of stirring the pot. But others just say, like, there there was just this general sense of distrust of the whole thing in part because of that and because nobody had heard the music. This was, again, a time when it was so popular that sheet music would be sold kind of to the general public uh, to consume much the same way you would buy an album of a, a, a band that you were going to see before the concert happened. And none of that was allowed since the music had been held so tightly. So it was kind of just this perfect storm of people being grumpy about the premiere of Madama Butterfly. I feel like it's like, Spider-Man unlock the dark. <laughs> Except to the best of my knowledge, no one died in terrible stunts. No. I don't think anybody died in Spider-Man, but there were some injuries. Right. So the reviews were terrible, but Puccini always thought that Butterfly was his best work. And when he staged it the following year in the northern Italian city of Brescia, uh, people greeted it much more warmly. It's really come to be recognized as the amazing work that it is, uh, <laughs> sort of transcended that horrible opening. And even despite the butterfly incident, uh, Puccini was really much loved by Italy. And when he died uh, sometime later in 1924, while he was working on his final opera, Turandot, the entire country really mourned. Some will even describe this as a mourning that went on for a couple of years. They really felt the loss of this artist. So we've talked a lot about composers up to this point, but there have been other figures who had a significant impact on the development and direction of La Scala through the years. Uh, Arturo Toscanini uh, was appointed artistic director of La Scala in 1898. So as, uh, you know, Verdi's stuff was wrapping up and Puccini was coming in, uh, and Toscanini was renowned as a conductor. Uh, he's said to have stepped in to conduct a performance of Aida at the Rio de Janeiro Opera House as a last-minute fill-in uh, when he was only 19. And he performed the entire opera from memory. And he had a wonderful memory that uh, apparently served him very well as he got older because he lost his eyesight and had to start conducting exclusively from memory. Uh, but in terms of his leadership role at La Scala, he completely reorganized the entire structure of the theater, uh, both from an artistic and an administrative perspective. Hey, Holly, we have some exciting news. Yeah, I am wildly excited and uh, people will have another opportunity to watch me cry at art. <laughs> Yeah, you sounded so calm, and it's not a calm situation at all. Uh, Our trip to Paris last year was really successful, so we're doing another similar trip this year, but this time to Rome and Florence. It's May 14th through 21st, 2020, and like last time, it is with a company called Defined Destinations, who is planning out this whole trip for us. Yeah, and during that week-long trip, we are going to see some of the great art that we have talked about on this show many times, including Michelangelo's David. We are going to go to Tuscany. We're going to visit St. Peter's Basilica. We are going to the 
Sistine Chapel. So it's going to be a fantastic trip. You can get the whole list of places that we are going and information about booking at defineddestinations.com. Scroll down to the Roman Florence trip with Stuff You Missed in History Class or come over to our social media. We have posts about it there too. Available now from iHeart, a new series presented by T-Mobile for Business, The Restless Ones. Join me, Jonathan Strickland, as I explore the coming technological revolution and the business leaders who stand right on the cutting edge. There are certain decision makers that are restless. They know there is a better way to get things done, and they are ready, curious, excited for the next technological innovation to unlock their vision of the future. These restless ones are in pursuit of bigger, better, stronger. They seek new partners, new strategies, new processes. They pursue innovative platforms and solutions to propel their teams, businesses, and industries forward. In each episode, we'll learn more from the restless ones themselves and dive deep into how the 5G revolution could enable their teams to thrive. The Restless Ones is now available on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you listen to podcasts. He restaged many of the works of the Opera House's most famous composers, and his interpretations uh, reinvigorated a lot of pieces for the public ear. He's said to have been able to pull the finest playing from the orchestra. He also brought the performance of symphonic works into La Scala's performance calendar, which allowed the orchestra to be the star instead of the singers. Yeah, similar to how, uh, you know, the choreographers had kind of expanded La Scala's repertoire to include ballet. He really expanded it uh, by not only staging operas, but also just huge symphonies. Uh, And then in more recent years, La Scala has had some offstage drama to contend with. Uh, At the end of 2001, the theater concluded its run of Otello, and it temporarily closed its doors for a pretty significant renovation. So from 2002, January 2002, to late 2004, this major construction project was underway. And there were really a lot of fears uh, among Italians and even worldwide among people that were just huge fans and recognized the historic and important nature of La Scala, that modernizing this facility was going to destroy some of the building's heritage. Despite the concerns, this entirely rebuilt stage let the theater perform three different shows in a single day, and the sound quality of the venue was improved when the heavy hallway carpets were taken away. Seating capacity was expanded to 2,105 seats from 1,800. And during the restoration, a walled-over fireplace was found in one of the boxes along the second level, and the boxes, which used to be privately owned, were all refurbished. Yeah, they tried to, um, even though they were modernizing a lot of stuff, they did sort of some complete kind of historical restoration type decor in some of the boxes. Uh, And on December 5th of 2004, the New York Times reported that La Scala had reopened exactly on time, just a little bit over budget and with fantastic new acoustics. So this all sounded great. Uh, The theater opened with the staging of the same opera, which had run when it first opened its doors in 1778, Salieri's Europa Reconciuta, and tickets for this performance ran into the thousands of dollars range. People were very excited uh, to be part of this new reopening. But just a year later, the BBC ran a story that seemed to suggest a gloomy future for the Opera House. Budgets for the arts in Italy were being slashed, and La Scala's future really didn't seem all that secure. 
In the months preceding that article, the head of the theater had been fired and the conductor of 15 years, Ricardo Muti, quit. Uh, yeah, it looked there was a while where there was a lot of head shaking and, um, you know, sort of glowery faces and people really thinking that La Scala had finally been, you know, after 200 years kind of run into the ground. But in fact, thankfully, the theater has weathered the storm, uh, you know, through some some strong leadership and some really devoted staff. Uh, it's been able to kind of get through those rough times and put together a uh, um uh, business plan that's kept it going. Uh, it's about to have a planned change of leadership this year, this coming October, uh, when Stefan Lissner, who has been there for a while, is going to leave his position. He's going to the Paris Opera. Uh, and Alexander uh, Pereira is going to take over the position. He comes from, I believe, an opera house in Germany. In addition to its theatrical opera productions, La Scala also still houses its ballet company, a ballet school, and a voice school. While the theater still does get a government subsidy, the operating costs are also covered by tip, ticket sales and a municipal tax. So, yeah, it is still thankfully going strong. And it's one of those things I wanted to cover because it is uh, the the artists that were sort of supported by this theater were have been so impactful. And, and like I said, there are so many songs that you hear that you don't even realize are by composers that came out of La Scala. So it's important stuff. Do you also have listener mail? I do. I have a couple pieces of listener mail. Uh, one is from our listener, uh, Devin, and she was writing us about, um, uh, in response to our Battle of Blair Mountain episode, but she's actually writing us in response to the listener mail, and she says, uh, you both mentioned owning some very old sewing machines and said that relatively little maintenance is required to keep them happy. I was wondering if either of you could suggest any resources for light maintenance on vintage or antique machines. I have a deluxe precision sewing machine, a clone of a Singer 15 made in post-World War II Japan, and I'm having trouble with the upper thread tension and have yet to find any useful advice. It runs beautifully otherwise and was acquired cheaply, and my understanding is that many, many of these machines were made under all kinds of brands, including Macy's and Sears. Mine is branded simply domestic, which I find very amusing, and I would like to be able to use it more. Uh, I would suggest, wherever you are at, uh, doing an online search for uh, sewing machine service, and I would actually shop around, make sure you find somebody that uh, is familiar with old machines. You are exactly right. There are many clones that were made uh, as we talked about in our sewing machine patent episode, uh, once the combination patent had happened, there were a lot of companies that were sort of licensing, making different pieces of it and even making whole machines uh, that were kind of duplicates of some of these Uh Sometimes you get very lucky and you'll find a sewing machine uh, serviceman who will do house calls, which is handy when you have one of these bigger, older machines. I used to have a guy here in Atlanta who was amazing and he would do 15 bucks a machine for any number of machines at your house. Like, So I'd be like, I have these four. They all need some work. And it would be a $60 service call and everything worked perfectly when he left. And then he retired and I cried. Um, but that's the scoop. I would look for a good uh, service person in your area, even though it's probably something you could do yourself if you're pretty crazy. Uh, or, you know, kind of uh, mechanically minded. With something that old, I always like to get a pro involved first so they can coach me through how to maintain it going forward. Mine right now needs a new belt, so that's a scoop. Uh, the other one <laughs> is from our listener, Catherine, and she sent us a link to an uh, article I just absolutely love. 
She says, hi, Holly and Tracy. I ran, in quotes, across this article, see what I did there online and thought what you might be and thought that you might be interested. I believe at least one of you mentioned that you are a runner, maybe. I am. Tracy has been. I don't know how much she's running lately, but uh, Not much. we have. We have run a half marathon together, so uh in any case, looks like shin splints afflicted humans long before the current running craze. If only they'd been fitted properly for a pair of running shoes. And she linked to this great article, uh, which is in Runner's World, but it is called A Case of Medieval Shin Splints. And basically, um there was an article in Acta Orthopedica, which is a an orthopedics uh trade journal. And these researchers from the University of Athens School of Medicine uh, had studied this skeleton that had been found in a Byzantine graveyard uh, in Rhodes, Greece. And they found that it had uh, medial tibial stress syndrome, which we know more commonly as shin splints. And these researchers talk about kind of the uh, the age of the gentleman. He was between 20 and 30 years old when he died. And they estimate his death on the timeline between 500 and 800 years ago. And even though shin splints are most, you know, believed to be thought of as exercise induced, they're basically, you know, any the result of any kind of repetitive weight bearing activity. So this could have been, uh, you know, anything that involved repetitive loading of the lower legs. So it could have been like pushing a plow or doing some other sort of heavy uh, farm work, but it was just kind of a fascinating thing. And we'll link to this article because it is a, it's a short but really fun read. And it links to the, uh, the Acta Orthopedica article if you want more in-depth medical stuff. Uh, and then they make a Jeff Galloway joke, which if you are a runner, you will appreciate. If you would like to write to us, you can do so at historypodcast at howstuffworks.com. You can also connect with us on Twitter at Missed in History, on Facebook at facebook.com slash history class stuff, at mistinhistory.tumblr.com and at pinterest.com slash mistinhistory. If you would like to learn uh, more about opera in general uh, and another famous opera house, you can go to our parent website, which is HowStuffWorks, and type in the word opera in the search bar, and you will get how the Metropolitan Opera works. Uh, so it'll be sort of an American counterpoint to what we talked about today sort of the important things that the Met has done throughout the years. You can also visit us on our uh, personal website, which is mistinhistory.com. If you would like to just history it up with us, or you can search almost anything your heart can imagine at howstuffworks.com, and we hope that you do. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. We are going to Italy after the success of last year's trip to Paris. We are planning another similar trip, still with defined destinations, this time to Rome and Florence. Yeah, we are going to spend a week exploring some amazing things. We're going to have city tours of both Rome and Florence. We're going to see the Roman Colosseum, the Vatican Museum, and the Sistine Chapel, St. Peter's Basilica, Vatican City. This is just a tiny fraction of all the stuff we're going to get to do. Yeah, it's May 14th to 21st, 2020. And to get more information, go to defineddestinations.com and scroll down to the Roman Florence trip with Stuff You Missed in History Class. The richest, most powerful place on earth. A fiction podcast. Doom and Bay. On an epic scale. Power is everything. Power gives everything. We have to get away from this place. Tuman Bay is our destiny. Now on the iHeart Podcast Network, Tuman Bay. Be sharp and die for Tuman Bay!
Listen to all episodes of Tooman Bay Seasons 1 and 2 now for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.